first recording. Okay, it's recording. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, welcome to uh, Pondering Primates. Uh, this is uh, Adam speaking, and today I'm speaking with Robert Ludarski. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, that's very well. I'm, prou I'm proud of you. Right. Robert is the president of the EU Society and has some very interesting thoughts on, on, the, on the future of both the EU and Europe. Um, and I wasn't planning on going too deep into like the, the EU as an institution today, and that's partly just to save my own ass, because Robert is far more knowledgeable in that matter than I am. Uh, but I thought we'd just try to delve into the issue of European identity. I want to know uh, how you, what you perceive Europe to be, uh, why you think it is that way, and what you would want Europe to become. Uh, so why don't you start with just a bit of a personal background and just explain how you got into this whole uh, United Europe as your main political project. Okay, uh, hi everyone, I'm Rob. Uh, long it's a very long story, uh, not very long story, but it's like I, I, I've had many steps before I came to the point um, I'm, I'm right, right now. I come from a small Polish town and like at the beginning of like my thoughts about politics, my thoughts about philosophy, I used to be very conservative, very Eurosceptic and like we might say that almost libertarian populist right now. And like it developed, it developed with reading, it developed with studying history, learning about economics, politics, and just perceiving the world and just seeing that it's far, far more complicated than <coughs> some more simple models. Like at the very beginning, I was Eurosceptic because like it was around 2010, 2012, when, every, the, when everyone knew about the only one thing and that was ACTA. So everyone was frustrated about this and like, oh my God, they want to censor internet. Of course, it was like, as I learned later, half of the things that we thought about it were just fake news or just misconceptions or just things that sounded very nicely for the politicians, which benefited from the protest and stuff like that. Uh, late, later, as I learned about history, as I, especially as I learned of history of 19th century and 20th century, <coughs> I became more and more, uh, more and more positive towards the EU. I started seeing that uh, that some things seem not very at the place, and uh, so some ideas as uh, of ideology and some aspects of human perception are quite unnatural right now. And the important point is that even though I used to be very conservative and very libertarian, I was always. I've always been kind of cosmopolitan. I was raised that way. My parents made sure that there were many things that I learned, but not to associate myself with any region, with any nation, with any group of people, just to freely choose when, where, where I want to belong, not to assess people based on their religions, based on their identities, based on their nation, nationalities and other, other stuff. And I think that these two factors merged, and like I started appreciating international cooperation. And I don't believe that Europe is a unique continent. We are just all human beings, we are all just humans, but we can't change history instantaneously. We can't say that tomorrow the world is going to be united and we're going to fight our problems in much more efficient and much better way. And this, this is why I believe that at any point of history, as Adam mentioned in his text and 
which was introducing this this topic. The history didn't start with us, but it doesn't end with us as well. And I believe that like me, my children, uh, my grandchildren have to contribute their little bricks to the history. And for me, I believe that my little brick is European integration and bringing people in Europe together because it's the most probable and the most likely process that can bring people together right now in the world. Like the, the world in Asia, Africa, South America is more, more divided than has, has been for many years. And I think that Europe can benefit from becoming more united because it's the only place right now that can be that united and can really benefit from that at this point of history. And yeah, that's, that's my story. And the story like comes comes to like the <coughs> current situation when I'm president of the EU Society at Edinburgh University. I published three articles for the, uh, for the New Federalist, and I work with young Europeans and the new and the young 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 European Federalists, and I really support the message. And I don't support like idea of bringing Europe and progressive ideas together, but I support the idea of Europe as a democratic body where the conservative people, the progressive people, the centrist people can actually coexist without being dominated by any of the groups. Do you have any okay. questions? Because I've been speaking for um, like four minutes. No, no, that's a great uh, place to start off. Um, I, um, as you know, I just read a uh, quite an old article of yours called European uh, Exceptionalism. And we can go into a bit more about you, about what you write there uh, a bit later on. But um, um, I, uh, I think a point where we probably disagree is the thing about European uniqueness. Uh, so you, you don't perceive Europe to be unique in any, uh, you know, uh, in any relevant sense of the word. Uh, am I understanding you correct? Uh, I perceive, like, we are all people wherever we go around the world, we are all people. So would you recognize the existence of a European identity? Again. Yeah, I would recognize existence of European identity, and that's that's what I wrote about. That was the uniqueness that, when we think about patriotism and European patriotism, I mean the European patriotism, the supranational patriotism, but also the national patriotism. And <coughs> I wrote about these two things because we can look at this from two points of view: from point of view of Polish patriots, Swedish patriots, German patriots. I don't mean nationalism, just just. Yeah. Mm just distinguish nationalists away from this conversation. But I mean European patri patriots and national patriots in Europe, that they're quite, dif they're quite different from their counterparts in the United States, in China, India, and other places around the world. Mm -hmm. So if you would have to uh, identify values, cultural practices, uh, patterns in behavior that you would uh, categorize as uh, perhaps unique to Europe, but typically European. Uh, what, what kind of values are we talking about then? Or like, I, I guess an easier way to phrase that is just, what does it mean to be a European to you? Like you're obviously very concerned with being a human being and that we're all equal on that level. But uh, for you personally, what, is, what does it mean to be a European? Uh, I believe that the European identity as what we have always wanted all identities to be, but at some other points of history, the American identity diverged from the, this idea. The Chinese identity diverged from this idea. Even the Indian identity diverged from this idea. Russian identity never even 
never even conversed with this idea. I mean, like, this is what I wrote in this article, that where Americans, Russians, Chinese praise war, we actually are ashamed of our very bloody history of slaughtering each other every century at every place in Europe, killing entire families, nations, just murdering each other. We celebrate peace. Like, when you look at the people from the last hundred years of European history, we don't sell it, like, and compare it, for example, to Americans. Americans celebrate their war heroes, their <coughs> military leaders, their presidents who led them towards wars, and they celebrate that. Whereas when you look at the pe top people in European history from the second part of 20th century, after the Second World War, and from the 21st century, we celebrate scientists, we celebrate musicians, we celebrate politicians who brought unity. No one, no one celebrates warmongers in Europe anymore. And the attitude towards history is quite unique. Like <coughs> other nations believe that we have that they have always been on the right side of history. Americans have this romantic idea of city upon the hill that they have always defended the right ideas, and this is why they can't stand Vietnam because they cannot, they they can't logically defend the idea of their involvement in Vietnam after a few years. And of the thing, and they can't defend things they did. Whereas in Europe, we understand that we were very often the wrong side of history. Germany understands that France understands that even even UK reluctantly understands the bad things about its empire, about colonialism, about f the crime against humanity in Africa during Boer War or in other places. Belgium understands that. Everyone in Europe understands that, apart from the nation, about nationalists in Germany and Poland, they're the only ones who don't, who don't understand that. Whereas, American, where you think about American way of life or the or the identity of modern India, it's still very focused on military, very proud of its military. We accept that our military exists, but we we accept it exists, but we don't talk about it too much. Okay, it's um, a lot to unpack there. I think I probably share your view of uh, how to uh, characterize European greatness. You know, the, the only type of nationalism we have left is probably like civic nationalism that is oriented around citizenship rather than kind of blood and soil. Obviously, that's a great advancement for uh, mankind. Um, uh, obviously, a lot of um, you know, scientific advancements are being made here, and that's the kind of thing we focus on, rather than just, uh, uh, you know, monkey-like uh, show-offs in strength, you know. But uh, I, I, I don't think you, in my view, you don't appreciate where these ideas are coming from. Uh, and I thought I could just, to illustrate this, I'm just going to quote a uh, part, uh, just a, a little a few lines from your essay, uh, where you wrote, and I quote, uh, while others believe their history has made them better, we accept ours and learn strong-mindedly <coughs> not to repeat it again. Um, and I mean, yeah, sure, a lot of European nations have been on the wrong side of history. Colonialism, as you mentioned, just one, one example. America certainly has. But I just would like to make the case that you would have to struggle, or you would struggle, to find a civilization or even a country that has never been on the wrong side of history. But you would also have to struggle to find a civilization that has been on the right side of history as often as Europe has been. 
Um, to me, European values are stuff like you know the rule of law, liberal democracy, uh, the sanctity of the individual, uh, pluralism. These are ideas that are uh, just historically uniquely <coughs> European. You don't really find them in any other cultural context, at least not to the extent we find them here. And to attribute that to just self-blame, uh, kind of, well, shame, as you basically attribute it to, that we have been able to look at our history and feel ashamed of it and therefore sh change it. I think that's, do, do you really feel that shame is the main contributor of, of, of all these ideas? I never, I, I never have I ever suggested that it's shame. I think it's more like reflection that drives us to be better. Like, in Europe's history, the, I, the old great ideas you mentioned, they, they were born after centuries of thoughts, of debates, of political fights, but it was never—it uh, was never due to shame, but due to reflection, due to our the fact that we can trust our, so we can sometimes trust our intellectual elites that we can really implement the ideas we thought about, because in history of other continents and other places, it's it was very often that people wanted to implement some changes, like, for example, during the American War of Independence. Uh, I read texts of David Mountain from Uni of, uh, University of Edinburgh. He makes a case against patriotism, and he wrote, but he saw very, very few, very few things in American history that show how it went wrong. Like in their case, they wanted to be neutral. They wanted to remain above the ideas of nation, the idea of identity and fighting for the identity, killing other people for identity. But the history <coughs> made them do it very fast after the declaring independence. A few years after declaring independence, people were dying from the idea of America because they didn't want to be British anymore. And I think that that's not that's not what sh that's not shame that made us to be like like we are right now. I think that's just reflection, that's political struggle and just some favorable circumstances that allow allowed us to develop in this direction. You said I you think you have suggested that I reject history. But in my opinion we just learn from this. But we don't have to associate emotions to that shame, pride or something like that. We can just analyze it in a cold way and see what we screwed and what we can do better. And we can see what things we did, did great, okay, we did architecture great, we don't have to change it that much. Mm. But the idea of feudalism was bad and we rejected it and we don't propose it anymore. Mm -hmm. And we, f we feel kind of bad that we used to do that, but we are not feeling shameful and we don't feel shame every day that we were feudal one day. Right. Um, I guess this is where my conservative instincts kick in a bit, because, um, um, I, I mean, you, you can make the case either way for any kind of major institution in any culture to have been bad or, or good. Um, what, what I'm concerned with is, uh, you know, as, the, uh, as you often say, <coughs> throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So we might look at the nation as a, 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 a system organizing people politically and say that, well, this is, uh, this is obviously not rational. It is obviously not uh, something we would come up with today. And like, no, it probably isn't. But it has, it has, as far as I can see, as a political institu institution, served our purposes in the sense that uh, all 
industrialized democratic uh, political systems in the world are nations. So I think to kind of dismiss the nation on the grounds that a lot of bad things have been done in, in the name of nationalism, uh, sh sh should we not be cautious about doing that uh, when it has also in a way serve, served our purposes for so long? Firstly, I believe that we should be cautious about everything we do. I don't support the idea of revolution. If, as much as I support and love the idea of United States of Europe, I don't want to wake up and learn that it happened tomorrow. Mm. I want to see the gradual change. I don't call for a revolution, I call for an evolution. And I don't call for abolishing liberalism and other things that were created at the same time when nation states were created. I'm calling for gradual changes staying with liberalism but learning from the past and can you imagine the nation states that persist next thousand years can you imagine the world in next in 3018 with <coughs> the same nation states as right now with the same poland the same sweden the same china the same taiwan the same russia it's so unsustainable all of the schools of political thought like <coughs> They agree on that that we can screw up very fa in a very fast way when we don't when we don't take care of that, and I'm I'm not calling for abolishing states tomorrow, saying that from tomorrow we can't call ourselves Swedish, we can't call ourselves Polish, we can't call ourselves British, but I'm call I'm calling for gradual change. Like we got rid of in the most civilized countries, the most developed countries, we already got rid of the religion from the politics. Apart from countries like Ireland, Italy, Poland, <coughs> in Europe, you don't have Roman Catholic Church that influences policies so much. You don't have Protestant Church that influences policies so much. You don't have Orthodox Church that influences policies so much. And we got rid of that thing, and that was beneficial. No, no one can claim that merging state and religion can be can be great right now in France or Italy or United Kingdom. And I think that's that's the, the same thing about identity we should not reject it as a concept in our lives i can feel polish there are many things about my polishness that i appreciate despite many jokes i make about poland but that's our great national sport making jokes <laughs> about our own country but i think that's that's not the thing that should drive us in politics we should not divide ourselves based based on some divisions that were created a few hundred years ago years ago based you look on at them as created or yes. kind of organically uh, having it's grown organically created like if one family one royal family hadn't screwed that 500 years ago there wouldn't be france but it would be france and burgundy if a few royal families screwed up something at a different point <coughs> the countries would be much different right now and it's i don't want to feel pride or base my political decisions based on the fact that my great-grand-grand-grandparents were exploited by different royal family than your great-great-great-grandparents were exploited by different royal family. Mm -hmm. I think that we can look at, we can get rid of this um, national pride and emotions and think about it logically. Mm -hmm. <coughs> In many places, I bet that I'm more similar to you and we can share many, many, many more things together than I can share with many Poles and the same about you, you can share many more things with me, with our listeners, than many Swedish people. Mm. And I think that it's not our nation what determines us. There are many things that determine us, how, how empathic we are, how sensitive we are, how in 
wise, intelligent we are, how we see the world, mm. what we believe in, but <coughs> should it determine our policy making? Um, no, I, I, I certainly <coughs> agree with you uh, in the, as far as the re rejection of kind of nationalist pride goes. But I, I think there's a, uh, I, I can't remember, remember who coined it, but there is a concept in political philosophy about the view from somewhere and the view from nowhere. And I would say that people like you and I, we are lucky enough to have the view from nowhere. Uh, we have the financial, the cultural and the social resources to pretty much settle down in any European country and make a living and make friends and we will uh, relate to people uh, on, on a level of ideas rather than culture, right? Uh, but for most people in Europe, I would, I would guess that they have a view from somewhere in the sense that the things they cherish um, uh, and are limited to cherishing in a way are stuff like, you know, their language, uh, the, the knowledge that they can go out into the street and the, the, the person holding the highest office in the land will hear of it because their country is still pretty small. Uh, or that they s still feel like, you know, their, their parents was an instrumental part in building the country they belong to today. Um, so while you and I might relate to each other than we would to any, any of our countrymen, perhaps, uh, do, do you think that's true for most people and do you think it can be true for most people in, in the foreseeable future? I think that it can be true for most people. We live in a quite globalized world. And when you we see backlashes against that all the time, right? Yeah, but there are forces driving like blow winds blowing in different directions all the time. I, I wouldn't call it like com great comeback of nationalism. It's like we have gone through a few big crises in past uh, for the past ten years. It's still like, however, we can say many bad things are happening, but when we look at the crisis from the previous century, comparable crises, and how they ended and. We are not at this point yet. Let's hope that we won't be at this point yet. <laughs> I think it's we are still doing quite okay. There are many bad things, there are many bad politicians, populists, and <coughs> people advocating very bad things. But I think that there is something like European dream. There is still many people who can travel. Most 50 years ago, most of my parents, my parents' friends, they, they peers. They were born in one town, they died in one town. My parents were special that they moved between two big towns in Poland, but that was extraordinary. Right now, even most of people from my small hometown, the place I can really say many, many, many jokes how small it is. But I don't think that out of few hundred people I have met from this place, I don't think that more than 50% left at this place. I think that like 60-70% have left this place. They live in different Polish towns, German towns, British towns. I think that like three or four of them or three or four people I have I met in my hometown in Edinburgh. And I think that's the European dream for me. That's the Europe I want to see that we can we can we can cherish our regions, we can be proud of them. But that's what I see that what I see it's the little boy from small town, small Polish town that I wasn't supposed to go very far from this town. I was supposed to go to high school then <coughs> and to some local uni in Poznan or maybe Breslau or Warsaw if, if I'm lucky. But that's and that's not my government that helped me in getting me out of my town. That 
the free movement of people that I could go, travel from Poznań to Edinburgh. That that's the EU that I don't pay for uni here. That's that's the EU that I don't have to pay very much for living here. Well, that's an EU made up of nation states. Uh, we, we still want to hold on to the idea of a, of, of EU as a, an intergovernmental institution, right? So, 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 so it only exists at the mercy of liberal democracies agreeing that that would be the best thing for their countrymen. Uh, yes, but that's, that's the beauty of European history. We don't need war, we don't need revolution. I don't want to see any revolution bringing the United States of Europe. I want to see gradual evolution, small treaties every few years, bringing us thoughts together and together because it's logical, because we can't fight global warming apart. <coughs> we have to cooperate on military, on, on finances, because we saw in 2008 what happens if we don't. We see what ha we see in Ukraine what happens when you stay fragmented and not very affiliated with any side. You, we see what happens in other countries in the world when, with trade, with crisis. We see crisis in Argentina. We he, we see economic stagnation of Malaysia. We see economic depression of Russia. We see what happens when you just try to stay isolated, when you try to be self-sufficient. Well, and I mean, I wouldn't say that every EU nation is doing too well. We could point at Greece. We could point at Italy. We could point at Spain. You know, uh, th yeah, there are a lot of people there that would draw the conclusion that uh, integration hasn't really worked to our benefit. Yeah, but is uh, it integration? Is it there is still debate whether that was EU that screwed Greece, Italy, or was it national governments? National governments love blaming pan uh, uh, pan national organizations for their mistakes, and pan national organizations always uh, usually agree to that. I think that's the perfect example of the World Bank in 1980s, when Nigeria screwed very much in their reforms, and they were like, oh, damn it, we, they knew that they were going into crisis whenever the price of oil changes. And the World Bank agreed, okay, you can blame us for the reforms for the crisis, but we all know that it's because you are too dependent on oil. You implement the reforms that are needed, and you can blame whatever you want on us. Yeah. And they blame it on them. And the same, Salvini blames everything the bridge collapses in Italy, Salvini blames it on the EU without thinking that that was the Italian government that didn't take care of that. Mm. What Something bad happens in Poland and President Duda tries to blame it on the EU, but Polish people are smart enough to know that they see the small EU flag on almost every piece of infrastructure in Poland and they see that it's the EU that built half of stuff in our country, not other way around. And <laughs> I think that with gradual integration, without any forcing, without telling, without ignoring people, I think that the crisis in the EU is, was needed. And they say, the sense not that the economic hardship in the case of what people feel was needed, but showing that we've been doing something wrong with the politics for the past few decades that we forgot about people from small towns, that we focus on the big towns, about on the middle class. We transformed almost half of Europe economically and politically from communism, from authoritarianism <coughs> towards full-scale liberal democracies. And we forgot about half of their populations, which felt left out. And this is, this, these are the lessons we have to take. But I think that these are the lessons there are not things. There are not things that were screwed by the EU, because they couldn't be screwed by the EU, because that's still 
we are still sovereign nations, but we're national states. And I think that with gradual progression, we can make it really democratic and really useful. Mm. Because if it's not useful, it's, there is no point of doing that. Mm. There is no point of, certainly the point is not making map look nicer or easier. It's not point of just choosing the European flag because blue looks better than red or something like that. <coughs> Sorry, I've been speaking for past no, six minutes. No, that, that's why you're here. <laughs> just three, so. I, I um, want to hear your arguments as well. Well, um, I thought I would just... We're nearing 30 minutes here, and there's certainly one topic I wouldn't want to not have discussed with you now that you're here. Uh, and, and I think this ties everything pretty neatly together. Our talk of, uh, you know, historical shame, uh, but also um, how, how the EU is perceived uh, among the, the, you know, the, the, the ordinary people of Europe, let's say. And that's like obviously the issue of immigration. Uh, so like the way I see it, and this is perhaps favored by my Swedish perspective, is that the kind of insecurity that you allude to, that you feel have made us strong, that we look at our history and feel like, oh, all of this Look at all the bad we did. Uh, let, let's make, let's do that better. Let's embrace other cultures and let's see the best in others. Uh, has I think kind of shifted now, and we tend to see the worst in ourselves. And I am genuinely worried that when we come into close contact with other cultures, certainly other religions, uh, and especially the case of Islam, which is a far more dominating, forceful, and I would say. Uh, at least today, violent than any form of Christianity you can find, that that kind of self-blame and self or insecurity, uh, lack of self-confidence, will bring us into perhaps a deadly conflict with a culture that is, that, that is not accustomed to reflecting uh, to the same extent. Um, do, do, you, do you have any kind of intuitions about how to handle that kind of cultural exchange? Oh yeah, of course I have many intuitions yeah. about that. Firstly, I, I can't deny we screwed up, we screwed in Germany, we screwed in Sweden, not by taking these people. We, that's the right thing that we did. We saw someone who need, needed help and we helped them, but we helped them in a, ver like, in a very poor way. Like Germany, like the strongest and by, as many people think, the most organized country in Europe for the past four years hasn't been able to change its own rules on asylum seekers. And as a result, if you're an asylum seeker in Germany, you can't look for a job for like a year or two. I don't want to give a certain date. I don't mm, want to yep, spread fake yep. news. That's the same problem with Sweden. People took so many things for granted, were so not reflective about some things. I, I remember what changed, what, what, when I used to be libertarian, populist, it was still 2014, and, and I was very against immigration. And I read a very long interview with deputy, uh, deputy chief of police in, in Stockholm, I think. And he... Or, in, the, in the city of Stockholm? Yes. Okay. I, I think he originally came from Afghanistan. Okay. And he was talking about this topic, and because his origins, he had contact with many of the people. <coughs> he, could, he could talk about the mistakes we made quite freely and that was the great thing to read for me because that changed my populist mind and, and I saw that okay it's not the fact that we had these people that we screwed but how we did it. He talked about that we didn't teach these people that there's different European culture and there are different social norms 
uh, he was talking to a po I think he was talking to a Polish paper then, and he was bringing the differences between Swedish culture and Polish culture, and things that Polish people are taught when they take Swedish classes. That, for example, in, po in Poland, when you invite someone's child to your home uh, to play with your children, it's a natural thing for you to give them food and to share food with them. Whereas for he mentioned that I think for Sweden, some Nordic nation it was rather opposite that without asking someone's parents you don't share food with someone else's child even mm -hmm. if they visit your place and um, he gave so many examples of that and we didn't think about teaching people that because <coughs> we are at our point of history our point of development our point of human thought that <coughs> it was unthinkable for us to teach people how to live mm -hmm. we didn't care about helping people find jobs we just thought that okay that in europe the problem solved but the, the many other problems started. And we thought that it would work like migration from Ukraine, from Russia, from other places where it's not. Asylum seekers, refugees are different kinds of people than economic migrants. Mm -hmm. And we try to handle them like economic migrants without, without proper rules, without proper education, without proper preparation. And we screwed. I can't deny. Right. But did did EU screw it? I think that was national governments that couldn't handle their own mig migration policies. It was Germany under Angela Merkel. It was Sweden uh, under Social Democrats. There was no Jean-Claude Juncker running around Sweden forbidding Swedish people to handle the proper... Well, you, can't the say problem. That, you can't say that he and his comrades are neutral in this issue, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious what, what side they prefer. Yeah, they prefer... And how openly critical they are to any leading European politician who suggests uh, a kind of uh, return to normalcy in this Yeah, uh, they didn't do it, they didn't do it right, they assumed I was so right about the views. Yeah. And I, th <coughs> I think that's what I want to get to, because I think it's great that you can like, acknowledge uh, in a very nuanced way that, that, that the EU or that the European countries handled this in a wrong way, but why do you think that is? Do you not see a relation between how we dealt with the not not just the 2015 crisis, but like immigration for the past 10, 20, 30 years, and this kind of co post Second World War depression that Europe has been suffering on a cultural level, that we have become so insecure in the merits of our own civilization that we completely blinded ourselves to the reality that there isn't a little European living in every single person on earth, that some people have grown up with values that are just so different from us that a little education or finding them a job won't, uh, won't really change that. And especially if they believe that they have God on their side. Like that, uh, and meanwhile, we have a country like Saudi Arabia who has taken in, I think, you can correct me on this, but I think I'm pretty right in saying that they took in zero uh, Syrian refugees. Like that's a neighboring, uh, Arab state that is much more similar to them in terms of uh, culture and values and religion. And I don't see any outrage in the Western press about that, but when Sweden closes its borders out of necessity, uh, there's you know, a hell of, hell of more outrage. So I just feel like the, just saying that we screwed up once, let's change it, change it from now on, I, I just don't think it's going deep enough into the underlying issues. I think that we should stay more reflective. We, it's great that we help people, 
I support this. I support helping them. I don't. I completely disagree with the way we're doing this. We can take these people, but we can handle them in a much better way. But, but do you think? Do you think that's even the solution? Taking them in. I, I mean, uh, every study shows that the most effective way of helping them is to put financial aid. I don't think aid, there is one solution. Is to well, uh, is to put financial aid into refugee camps in the near-lying areas rather than have them travel hundreds of miles to what hundreds I, of thousands of miles to get here. You know. What I think about this problem is, and I, about many problems related to Europe, United States, about modern politics. We think that we are educated, that we are very smart, very wise about our decisions, but we still behave like five-year-old five children who still think that there is only one solution. Of course there are many solutions, and we should not apply only one. We should try to help them in their place. We should try to pressure Saudi Arabia to help them. And when there are still some remnants of people who are coming to Europe, then we should help them. But we should not close our eyes and just see only one of the solutions. It's wrong. It's wrong seeing only a solution that helping people abroad, but it's also wrong seeing only one solution and helping people only in Europe. We should help them everywhere. We should, we should solve their problems like <coughs> As much as I love the EU, I in one of my last articles I trashed it and, and related its policies to Western Sahara. It's basically very similar to problem to Crimea or Palestine, but it's not sexy enough and like it's quite far from every European nation apart from Spain and France and Portugal and no one seems to care and because of this because of this problem that no one seems to care, because of the fact that Morocco is very uh, is skillfully using the problems of EU so that we can't reach any decision with without unanimity and that EU cannot be a single decision making process so they abuse the problems of nation states to force us to accept a very unhuman not very humanitarian solution to the problem so lack of solution. We have almost entire nation in refugee camps. That's world last colony, and no one seems to care. And the e when the EU tries to care, uh, seems to care, Morocco abuses the differences between different nations in Europe, between Sweden, Poland, between Denmark, Germany, uh, how to play play them out. And I think it's it's terrible that we are so educated everyone goes to the U almost everyone goes to the university from our generation studies every day reads every day we read we write more than any other generation but that's mainly thanks to the facebook messages and stuff like that <coughs> but still we behave like this 5 year old children who see, we see one problem and we want to see one solution but these are social sciences there's no one right answer so why there should be one proper solution? We should have a set of solutions for every problem. And we should not think about suddenly closing all the borders, but trying to make it work very fine in Europe. We, we should make it work abroad. We should make it work in these places where there are conflicts. We should solve the conflicts, help other states take the refugees. And if, we, if some of the refugees come to Europe, then help them in a human and a really efficient way, not screwing them over in Germany <coughs> and thinking that they can wait two years to work in Germany. Because if someone has to wait two years to work with minimum amount of cash and everything, that doesn't depend what your culture is, you become very easily radicalized. And it isn't what 
culture makes does it isn't cu that culture makes us radical. It's much easier to radicalize us when we are poor. Okay, I was gonna end it there, but I uh, I just don't feel like I'm ready to leave that point hanging in the air. Uh, you don't think some uh, like cultural practices are more prone to radicalizing? Uh, do you think economic status and perhaps lack of status is the sole or even just primary explanation to radicalization of some groups? Religious radicalization, political radicalization? I think that's it's not the culture about it, but just education that's associated with this culture. When we think about I mean, a lot of the terrorists in the um, <coughs> 2015, uh, I think it was Paris, attack, where they blew, blew uh, sorry, firing into that. Uh, Charlie Hebdo. No, not not Charlie Hebdo. The um, the concert, the musical. Oh, the mental man uh, thing in Paris. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of those guys were educated at the London School of Economics. You know, Osama bin Laden certainly wasn't a poorly educated man. Yeah, but on the other hand, you can you can make a similar argument that statistically it's still we experience more far-right terrorism in Europe than Muslim terrorism. It's just sexier in the news topics. And I, just, I haven't seen those statistics. And uh, the United States, like mass shootings, and in Europe, like for example, I think it was 2016 when uh, so, uh, lab Labour MP was Slow, uh, was murdered yeah. in her office. It happens in Poland, but we just don't associate them with terrorism because. Well, would you associate that with poverty? <coughs> no, we, that we associate with just violence. Just we, violence? The ideas behind the violence doesn't matter? No, 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 no. I mean that we look at different things and the image that got to our minds that terrorism. So we associate terms only with the Muslim terrorism. The same way in 1980s, people when thought about terrorism, they thought about Irish people or, or Corsicans. Mm. And in at the beginning of 20th century, they thought about anarchists. It's, of course, it's very, it's also easy to uh, radicalize a person who's very educated. But I think that, I think that's, Culture is part of that, but only to ex uh, but the like when we split culture into different components. I think the biggest of them is education. Mm. Of course, there are other factors. I cannot deny that they exist, but I think that we underestimate some factors and we over exaggerate some factors. But as I said, I don't think that everything has one solution, one answer. But there are multiple answers to everything, and there are different factors. And culture is one of them, but no, it's unmeasurable. We can't, we can't see whether Russian, Chechen, uh, Egyptian, Palestinian, Syrian culture makes someone more prone to terrorism, because the sample groups, the groups of people would have to investigate are just too big, and it's just impossible to do it with current, right. with with current with current mm -hmm. science. Um, yeah, I think I think I got you a bit more in the place where I wanted you there. So I think that's uh, we're just over forty minutes, uh, and I don't want to push the patience of our uh, potential listeners too much. Uh, so I'll, we'll stop it there, and uh, we'll certainly pick this up some other time. Uh, if you would like to just take uh, one minute to share one of your famous Polish jokes, would you like to do that on recording? I. 
I'm sorry, I can't do okay. it on this. You heard it here, Robert, Robert chickened out on the uh, opportunity of a lifetime. But uh, no, I no? I don't want to be recorded when I joke about my home country. Right, okay, well. Though I really, I think that's the humanist society. So I don't think to say it, but I just want to stress it that if any of my arguments persuaded you in any way, please don't trust me. <laughs> the same the same thing with Adam. Don't trust Adam. Don't trust me. Don't leave well, know that in already. this room. <laughs> Believe me. Doubt what we say. Doubt every word that we hear. Everything that you see. Don't be easily persuaded by just people who talk confidently or just some, use some smart words. Don't be persuaded. But if they were us. persuaded, and or if anyone listening is persuaded, uh, how would they go on about joining the EU society? You can join us during our weekly events. Like next week, we have social on on Thursday pub crawl. <coughs> In two weeks, we have two events. We have panel discussion that includes one of the Scottish ministers and few academics and one journalist about Brexit. Then two day, uh, a day later, we have a movie screening so that we don't only talk about serious stuff but we can watch a movie by the way that's seven years in tibet it's a great movie that's young young brad pitt and there's tibet and it's like it's a great movie yeah. uh later it's we official robert can watch movies uh <laughs> we have reading groups we have panel de debates we have uh and we have socials so like feel free to come to any events we won't talk to you want to listen to your ideas you don't have to agree with us there are some people who just like the EU in the current state in our society. There are some hardcore federalists who are even worse than me in this case. There are some leftists, there are some rightists. There is place for everyone and we don't want to exclude anyone. Okay. Right. Thank you for listening to me for 45 right. minutes. Uh, I didn't think it was possible. It's, <laughs> it's always great talking to you and you're always welcome back. So thanks Robert for coming on the podcast. Thanks Adam.